everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk. Hi, I'm Ed Murray. Uh, I've been uh, at Chester Springs since 2007. I truly believe that my wife and I uh, left, and the family, Elijah and Camille, left Douglasville to buy a home not so far from here so we would find this church. And so it's my pleasure to be able to speak to you today. And, uh, you know, there's, I'm, I'm in sales, so there's this guy, Zig Ziglar, and he's a sale. Who knows Zig Ziglar? Yeah, well, he's a sales professional, right? Okay, and so Zig used to tell this story. He had won a contest, and, you know, Zig's is a little older, so back in the you know, contest, he won this prized ham. Now, that was good back then because, you know, you could feed your family for a week off a of ham, right? And so he brings his prized ham home to uh, his beautiful wife, Jean, and she immediately cuts the shank end off the ham. And he looks and he goes, honey, why did you cut the shank end off my prized ham? And she says, Jean says simply, you know, well, that's how you bake them. That's how my mama cooked a ham. Why did your mama do it that way, said, uh, said Zig. And Jean said, I'm not sure. Let's call mama. So they call mama, and they say, you know, mama, you know, I'm cutting the ham like you showed me. I'll cut the shank end off the ham, and Zig thinks I shouldn't do this. What's going on? Why do you cut the shank end off the ham? And uh, mama says, well, you know, Granny used to always cut the shank end off the ham, so I cut the shank end off the ham, and, you know, let's call Granny. So they all call Granny, and they say, Granny, you know, uh, you know, we're here, we have this beautiful prized ham, we cut the shank off just like Mama did, just like, you know, you did. Why do you cut the shank end off the ham? And Granny said very clearly, you know, I don't know why you guys are cutting the shank end off the ham, but I cut the shank end off the ham because my pan wasn't large enough for the full ham. Holiday traditions can be very much like the preparation of Zig's prized ham. No one is quite sure why we do them, but they give us a sense, and I suggest sometimes a false sense of normalcy and security. And as we enter the Advent season, Advent simply meaning the arrival of a notable thing, person or event. And in our Chester, Vineyard Chester Springs context, and the context of the ancient Christian Orthodox Church, we're referring to the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Today, I will speak for a moment on the theme of tradition versus mission. Tradition versus mission. Now, not all traditions are harmful. In fact, most are fun and bring back fond memories or highlight special smells and flavors. Uh, you know, in our house, macaroni and cheese is an essential part of the Christmas and Thanksgiving meal. You know, our daughter Camille came back from GW, and I had circulated the menu on Evernote 
while the kids were at school to get approval because, you know, you don't get buy-in. All of a sudden, bad things happen when they come home and there's a dish that's not there, right? So everyone got buy-in on the menu. There were some recommendations. You know, they weren't going to cook them. I was going to cook them, but there were recommendations. And so Camille came home the first night, and she was like, no, we're actually on the train. We're on the train back from D.C. She said, you cook macaroni and cheese, right? I said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's on the menu. She said, okay. We got home. The next day, she's like, saw the food coming in the house. You're cooking macaroni and cheese, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> it's on the menu. Do you believe that morning? Because the cooking's going on. She didn't smell it, didn't see it. I'd already made it. It was out. Where's the macaroni and cheese? Okay. Elijah's plate was so full of macaroni and cheese. All right. I, I don't know how I finished it. But, you know, that's a tradition in our household. And growing up, Christmas uh, at my parents' home was special. You know, there was always a fresh-cut tree. There were lights on the house. There were presents. Extended family would come over, and there was wonderful food. And as I grew older and moved out of the house, Mom continued the tradition of cooking and a stocking stuffer of two packs of underwear for me. You know, this was great, and it carried me through the year. You know, I vividly remember when my mom's food wasn't really hitting the mark. Well, in truth, I remember that Christmas, it wasn't really good. Mom had gotten older. She had been slowed by a rare disease. And I recall it was a sad realization and that even though my brother and I took up the mantle of cooking, hanging lights, getting a tree, it wasn't the same. I passed into adulthood, and my parents were aging. You see, that's the problem with traditions. They're only as good as well they're good. Psychiatrists used to ask the question to new patients, how was Christmas in your childhood home? They would ask that question even to Jewish folks, okay? Because if you're Jewish, Christmas, and I know this because I worked at a lot of restaurants that were owned by Jewish folks, Christmas is Chinese in a movie. And if that doesn't happen, there's probably some dysfunction in the house, right? Now, I know I'm blessed. We had holy, laughter-filled, abundant, loving Christmases in my childhood home. But I also recognize not everyone did. Consumer culture, our own stuff, the Satan, all conspire to move our focus from Jesus of Nazareth and his radical upside-down kingdom to anything else bad or good. If Christmas traditions in your home are good, the danger is we become ambivalent to the saving message of Jesus and comfortable in our macaroni and cheese, presence, and laughter. And if Christmas was not great in your home or in the past, the danger is culture and our own stuff and, our, and, and, and the Satan will make us desire what culture says 
Christmas is, that real American Christmas. Now let's throw in two years of COVID. What have happened to your traditions in COVID? You know, we went out the other day uh, to the Christmas Village in Philadelphia to uh, celebrate Camille's 19th uh, birthday. It was a tremendous amount of fun, and I'm really proud of her. You can give her a hand. Yeah. And, you know, gratuitous dad thing, right? And so, uh, you know, as we looked around and I talked to Maria, I was like, you know, we were here last year and everyone had on masks and there was a lot of separation and there was a, a worry because Omicron was just hitting. The, 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 the year before that, there wasn't much going on at all, right? So what has happened in two years of, of, of COVID with our traditions? I noticed on Facebook, Tracy Hess posted something about people who were missing and a prayer for them. And I thought it was so good because as we celebrate our Savior, we have to recognize that things were a little different, aren't they? And that if we're remaining on traditions for sustaining us, we're going to be in real trouble. Remember when my mom purchased underwear for me each year as a stocking stuffer? Well, two years after my mom had passed, I opened my dresser drawer and took an accounting of my underwear and realized there was a holy situation of another type happening because she hadn't been around to buy anything, right? So traditions are only as good as they are good. So why don't we stand and uh, in, in standing, just pay honor to God's word. We're going to read some scripture from Job. It's in page, it's page 551. If you, there's Bibles in the back, I'll give you a moment to grab one if you want to grab one, and I'll set up the scripture a little bit. You know, Job was a uh, very blessed person, and the Satan kind of comes in and, and undoes all of that. Uh, and so Job goes from tremendous wealth, both in family and in cattle, and in workers, and in vocation, to a really desperate place, both physically, mentally, and spiritually. Three of his friends come along, and they sit with him, and they're pretty good for a little while, but then they start accusing him of stuff. And then at, at, at this point, we catch up to the story. There's a, a dude named Elihu, and he's speaking to Job and his three friends. And here we find this, these words. But if an angel from heaven appears, a special messenger to intercede for a person and declare that he is upright, he will be gracious and say, rescue him from the grave, for I have found a ransom for his life. Then his body will become as healthy as a child's, firm and youthful again. When he prays to God, he will be accepted and God will receive him with joy and restore him to good standing. He will declare to his friends, I sinned and twisted the truth, but it was not worth it. God rescued me from the grave, and now my life is filled with light. Shall we pray? Holy Spirit, come. Father, you are the rock that satisfies. 
And so today, uh, we just ask for your presence, that your manifest presence be felt in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat and thank you. As Tom and uh, Granty Jan, I know Jan is Jan mom, actually. I also know Jan is a really good golfer, mentioned uh, the first week of Advent in the church, and that's the Big C Church, focuses on the theme of hope. Christmas often, Christians can often confuse the word for wishful thinking. You know, if we hope something will happen, we have no control over whether it will or not. You know, I went to the Phillies game for the World Series. They had just destroyed their opponent the day before. And I sat, there were great seats, supplier bought them. We sat right there at the left field porch where numerous home runs had been hit. I'm ready, right? I told Maria, if a ball's coming, yeah, I'm going to move you out of the way, and I'm going to save you, baby. I'm going to grab that thing. All right, let me tell you what happened. The Phillies didn't get a hit for seven innings. Okay? All my hopes were dashed, and we lost. You know, but the biblical sense of hope is very different. Hope in the Bible exists as a secure assurance, a trust placed in a trustworthy God. God has not failed us in the past. And therefore, if he claims he'll do something in the future, we can have hope that he will fulfill this claim. Hope waits and endures. It isn't flimsy or merely wishful thinking. Hope can withstand fire trials, despair, as we wait for Elihu's special messenger, the angel of the Lord in Hebrew, or Jesus, in our English language, to move. You know, I have people in my life uh, that, have been in, that have been touched by the Holy Spirit but are currently not moving with the Spirit's guidance, and it's caused me deep sorrow uh, in my being. But then I meditate on God's Word, specifically Isaiah 43, where Isaiah speaks from the prophetic voice, and he says, from eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. And that gives me great comfort. You know, if we want to shift our view of hope from the world to the biblical, it's critical that we don't get mired in tradition, but instead immerse ourselves in the knowledge of the nature of God's character and mission. Remember this Advent season, character triumphs gifting. Did you get that? Character triumphs gifting. You've been released from the pressure of buying gifts, that perfect gift. Get people gifts. It's a blessing. But you're released from the pressure that it can cause us. 
God's character will triumph over any holiday gifting. Look, my family thinks I just released them from getting me anything, and that that's not true. I, I have a list, okay? You're going to get it, all right? So let's look at what God's mission is. If, we're, if we can't lean on tradition, let's just take a moment, and we'll be quick. We're going to look at God's mission, and then we're actually going to just sit in centering prayer for a few minutes. Then we're going to worship. So then God said in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the animals on the earth and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings, you and me, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern over it, reign over the fish and sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. God created humankind to partner with him to fill the earth with other human beings and the, cre- and the, that, the creativity that would spring from critically thinking, free will enabled humankind to advance God's kingdom on the earth. Now that seems like a really understandable, simple message, doesn't it? But listen to the words of Walter Brueggemann, uh, a scholar, major theologian of our time. He says, that mission is dangerous because God's will for the world is in deep tension with the way the world is organized. Humbly, I would add to Brueggemann, that's right, Amos, I don't get up here all that often, so I'm going to add to Brueggemann. (laughs) The mission is dangerous because the way we organize our desires to be king versus the reality that we are not is in deep tension in our lives. I really believe there is a reason the wise men who were kings came to see Jesus during, after his birth. There was a symbolic casting off of their crowns as they worshiped something that was greater than they are or were. I think that's a message for us. And you might say, I'm pretty humble. I haven't got a crown. I got a crown. Everybody's got a crown around something. And the message of Jesus Christ, the mission of the Lord, is that we simply take it off and acknowledge there's somebody, Jesus. There's something, God, Holy Spirit, that is larger than us. Now, what's that look like in the Garden of Eden? Well, Adam and Eve get gobsmacked with this tension when they disobey God because they wanted to be like God. Even though they knew they couldn't possibly be God, the result is shame, avoidance, and ultimately, a loss of intimacy with God. 
But the love of God is so deep and so wide that in the moment of judgment, God tells Adam and Eve, I'm going to fix all this. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix this mess you made. I'm going to fix the bad advice you got from the Satan, a jealous enemy. In Genesis 3.15, we find these words, and I'll cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel, a direct reference to Jesus, that the offspring of Eve must be injured and strike his heel, but that Jesus ultimately will kill death for us, will allow us to step into a space with a holy God without shame. You know, when we go into his presence, we're not hiding. We are not with shame. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to announce and show the kingdom of God while partnering with Jesus to bring the way of life to earth. And that's important for us here in the vineyard because we believe that we can not only announce the kingdom of God, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. There are times when God breaks in and heals people, takes care of emotional hurt, changes the direction of people like that. And in this community, as we build it out, the kingdom of God grows. Hear the prophetic words of Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. You know, other versions, the ESV takes that passionate commitment and says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. That excited me still, that the Lord is going to do it for himself. He's going to fix the mess for himself so that we can be with him. That is love. So, if that is the mission, how do we live it out? How do we live it out? And uh, I'd like to invite the worship team up. So uh, this Advent season, leadership is giving us an opportunity to corporately join in the mission of Jesus in a big way as a church. And I love this about leadership here. They're, you know, the Holy Spirit empowers folks, and they want you to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to say in one unified voice as a church, we want to partner with God in his mission to love our communities as we love ourselves. And that is by giving people the best gift they will ever receive. And that is the knowledge of who 
Jesus is. This is an evergreen gift. It's life-changing. It's generational. It changes hearts. It changes homes. It changes neighborhoods. It changes communities. And let me tell you, friends, let me suggest to you, this is the best gift you can give anyone. Now, I want to talk about boundaries because you're like, oh, Ed, that's you. you're the evangel guy, evangelistic guy. You know, you like going out there talking to people on the street. And yeah, I do. I've seen some great things in the street. I really have. And, uh, but I want to just spend a moment talking about boundaries versus mission. Because we're in a time where I hear a lot about boundaries. Like, whoa, that's not for me. I don't need to go there. I don't need to do that. I need to protect me. Humbly, I submit to you and myself. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He was beaten to a pulp. He spread his arms out. They nailed nails into his wrist and into his ankles. They pierced his side. They mocked him. They sold his clothes. And they left him for dead. There was no boundary. There was only mission. There was no boundary. There was only mission. Now, Jesus showed us missional boundaries, okay? Jesus was in a town, and he was healing half the town. And around 3 a.m., he said, <laughs> that's a lot of healing. And he went off and prayed with his father. In the morning, the disciples came looking for him. And they said, hey, you know, you healed half the town. The other half is looking for you. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, that's not why I came. I need to preach this message to the other towns. You see, my friends, that's a missional boundary. Okay? Jesus had sat with his father. He had gotten direction. And there was action. Saying, you know, I really love my neighbor, but I don't know if I want to talk to them about this, even though we've been friends for a long time. It might change our relationship. Maybe that's a missional boundary. You should pray about it. Maybe it's not. Okay? Uh, I was at a church that Camille attends in D.C., and uh, the pastor gave some statistics about how Christians really believe that Jesus is this wonderful gift, but at the same time, then, substantially less Christians want to share this gift or talk about it. So what we're doing is Alpha. And Alpha is an easy way to get people to understand who Jesus is. It's a course. It's 12 weeks plus a Holy Spirit day away where people can ask for the infilling of the power of the Holy Spirit. And everyone here is invited to invite friends, bring yourselves, family members. There is a prophetic word that we're looking for 50 baptisms from Alpha. 
that seems like a ridiculous amount. God is in the ridiculous. Do you know the story? Have you read the book? <laughs> He's in it. There are some folks here, Gene, Steve, who else is on the Alpha Prayer Team? Raise your hand, please, or stand. Yeah, Weaver. You know the food's going to be good, okay? All right, because Alpha is a meal, it's a video, and it's a discussion. You don't have to convince anybody, okay? We let the Holy Spirit do that. We just bring people to it. And so if you want to partner with these folks and other folks, Emily who's not here, and there's some other folks on the team, at the end of service, there's going to be a place, a number you can text, okay? You can text the number, and then you're going to get a message. And then I'm going to ask you to write down some names of people you think you want to invite to this 12-week dinner party, okay? And we're going to start praying about those names. We're going to circulate those names, and we're going to pray about those names so that when you go and talk to these folks, that you're not alone, that they've been covered with prayer, that we've asked the Lord to open their heart. Because have you noticed Chester Springs is kind of now a city? It's a little town now. There's stuff going on. There's people here. This is good. Well, as a church, we want to see people flourish. So we're going to give you that opportunity. Let's do two things. The first thing we're going to do is just two minutes of centering prayer. What's centering prayer? Centering prayer is just sitting quietly before the Lord. Because I think that going into this Advent season, with all the change from COVID, we need the Lord's presence. I need the Lord's presence. And then we're going to go right into worship. And as we go into worship, I would ask, as, you, as, as people are laid on your heart, that you begin to pray to God, who should I invite to this 12-week dinner party that could be the best gift that they ever give, that could change their lives, their children's lives, their grandchildren's lives, their great-great-children's lives, and on and on, because it's an eternal gift. So, let me get the Centering Prayer app up. Are you guys into that? Is that good? You're quiet. Maybe? All right, let's see what God has to say. So, Centering Prayer. Choose a sacred word as a symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. Sitting comfortably and with your eyes closed, settle briefly and silently into the sacred word as the symbol of your consent to God's presence and action within. When you're engaged in your thoughts, return ever so gently to the sacred word. And at the end of the prayer period, remain in silence with eyes closed for a couple of minutes. You ready? I'll just pray beforehand. But if an angel from heaven appears, a special messenger to intercede for a person and declare that he is upright, he will be gracious and say, rescue him from the grave, for I have found a ransom for his life. Then his body will become as healthy as a child's 
firm and youthful again. When he prays to God, he will be accepted. And when God and God will receive him with joy and restore him to good standing. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship our God. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.